So as we continue in our study of the fruit of the Spirit this morning, we reach the point where we are studying the fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness. And I've belabored the point so far in this series that we need to be loving and kind, which means that we're seeking people's good instead of seeking people's harm. And as we have seen, love is basically seeking the good of others, even at great cost to yourself. And I qualified that to some extent. As you have opportunity, as you have capacity to do so, and as it fits within the paradigm of appropriately prioritizing your life. You can go back and, and listen to that for a more exhaustive study of love. But, but, but there needs to be this impulse of seeking the good of others, even at great cost to yourself. And kindness is very similar. I said to you a few weeks ago that maybe love could be distinguished from kindness and that love emphasizes more the motivation and kindness is the words or the actions that flow from it. So you might say that if you love someone, it will prompt you to be kind to them. But even here, there remains overlap because love can be used as a verb in the, in the sense to act lovingly. And, um, or, or it can be used as a verb. And then there's a sense in which you could say that to act lovingly and to act kindly are roughly synonyms. And someone may be characterized as a kind person just as someone may be characterized as a loving person given the disposition in their hearts apart from anything that they actually do or say Uh, any specific actions under consideration. So I would just remind you as we look at gentleness this morning of the point I made in the extended introduction to this series that there is actually a great deal of overlap between the different fruits of the Spirit which are mentioned here in, in Galatians 5. And we can't entirely and cleanly distinguish one from another in every case. And I do think that is the case here again this morning. With gentleness. It's similar in many ways to love and to kindness. However, where we where we might look at what is specific to gentleness, we could say based on the usage of the word in the Bible, gentleness could be defined negatively as the opposite of harshness. So for example, Colossians chapter three and verse nineteen says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I believe that it would be basically synonymous to say, Husbands, love your wives and be gentle with them. Harshness is not a good thing. Are we ever encouraged in the Bible to be harsh? Think carefully about that before you answer. Thou shalt be harsh in thy dealings with thy fellow man. Pursue harshness? The answer is no. Is the triune God ever set before us as harsh? And and is it said that we should emulate that harshness which is in God? Again, the answer is actually no. Or the incarnate Son, Jesus, or any of the apostles. Again, the answer is no. Now, some of you might say, not so fast. 
because I can think of examples of God being harsh or Jesus being harsh or Paul being harsh. But I, I want to, I hope it will become clear the way I'm, I'm understanding and defining these terms. I want to say that in none of those cases were they ever harsh. Stern? Sure. Severe? Sure. But I don't think that there's ever a positive usage of harsh or harshness in the scripture. In fact, I think we're commanded the opposite, which is gentleness. Sometimes sternness and severity are necessary. Sometimes sternness and severity are loving and kind. But too much would be harsh, not gentle. And we should be only stern and severe insofar then as it is needful to do so, rather than defaulting to sternness and severity in our dealings with others. Corroborating this assertion is Paul's question to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 21, where he asks the misbehaving Corinthian Christians. He writes a letter to them, and they're acting bad in various ways. And he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Paul is prepared to be as stern and as severe as necessary with these Corinthian Christians. But the context shows that he aims, he would prefer to be as unstern and unsevere as possible, if I can put it that way, recognizing those are not real words. This not defaulting to sternness and severity is what we could call gentleness. Now obviously this raises the question, how much sternness and severity is necessary? To which I would appoint point to appendix 7.238 to which follows the book of Revelation where you may follow the formula to find out exactly how much sternness and severity is necessary. Obviously I'm being, being tongue-in-cheek here as there is no appendix and there is no formula. So let's explore that question this morning with the aim of becoming more appropriately gentle. Now first, let me reiterate a point we've already covered in this series. When some people are, are challenged about tone of voice or perceived patterns of harshness in their interactions with others, they will say, well, niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Ah, touche. But love, kindness, and gentleness are. And while it is indeed loving and kind at times to confront other people's sin and to seek to rescue people from error, etc., it is also the case that we cannot over-spiritualize the basic meaning of words such as love, kindness and gentleness in such a way that they mean something totally different from what unbelievers think they mean. In a way that discounts the perspectives of unbelievers who may think that a man is being, is unloving, unkind and harsh. We can't simply discount the perspective of unbelievers on the basis that the natural man does not accept the things of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 We can't just go, therefore, on that basis, 
the whole world might think that I am loving and unkind and harsh, but I know the spiritual meaning of those words. We can't do that. Apparently, a man's character is something that even unbelievers may be good judges of, according to the common grace given them. Since in, sec- or since in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes that being well thought of by outsiders is a qualification to pastoral ministry. So Paul doesn't go, well, never mind what they say. They, they can't understand the things of God anyway, for they're spiritually discerned. Paul goes, look, both people inside and outside the church should recognize that this is a man of good character. So we have to concede there's commonality here. So according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if a church leader manages to dupe a bunch of naive Christians into thinking that he is loving and kind and gentle, I am your loving, kind, and gentle pastor. I know the spiritual meaning of love, the spiritual meaning of kindness, the spiritual meaning of gentleness. And you should believe me rather than believing the rest of the world, which says that I'm unloving and unkind and harsh. If a guy's trying to pull that kind of bait and switch, we got to go, not so fast. Not so fast. Now, obviously, the irrational and ungodly prejudices of unbelievers, some unbelievers against a godly man, ought not to be taken into account um, with respect to his character. But the fact remains that a pastor ought to have the general respect even of unbelievers who are aware of his situation. So an implication of this for our purposes today is that we have an intuitive sense about what love is, what kindness is, and what gentleness is, and so do the people outside the church. And though we might have to clarify a few things, admittedly, we might have to nuance a few things, in order to hold fast to a biblical definition of these things in the midst of our postmodern world, which in some cases has gone crazy. Nevertheless, the assumption of Scripture is that even unbelievers generally have a decent sense about what these words mean. So gentle basically means what your neighbors think it means. Gentle means basically what your co-workers think it means with perhaps only a couple of minor clarifications here and there. And the Holy Spirit wants to make us gentle. Though Christians will sometimes have to be stern and severe, they ought generally to be gentle people and not harsh people. Now, of course, love, kindness, and goodness sometimes require you to hurt or even harm someone. Someone might say that this isn't true. They argue that we always ought to be tender. And we always ought to be not stern and not severe. We always ought to be non-offensive. And certainly not harmful. They argue that, well, God's kindness and gentleness are not limited. So neither should ours be. As we follow the example of God with unlimited kindness and gentleness we should also have unlimited kindness and gentleness never be severe, never be stern, never be offensive so they're good with love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control 
but that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they have a hard time with. Or the doctrine of hell, that God is not unlimitedly kind and and gentle in a way that never runs out towards everyone and God never crosses someone. God never confronts someone. God never calls someone to account. They can't stand the doctrine of hell because it doesn't fit with their idolatrous perversion of who God actually is. They're not okay with the teaching of Jesus himself that if the world hated him, then they're going to hate his faithful followers also. That there is a basic similarity, or there ought to be a basic similarity between Jesus and his followers. So if Jesus got crucified, then guess what? There's a good chance some people are going to want to crucify you too. Some people want everything we do and say to be palatable, non-controversial, non-offensive, and certainly not harmful to anyone. But have they forgotten what C.S. Lewis says about the lion Aslan in his children's allegory, the Chronicles of Narnia, who Aslan symbolizes Christ, Jesus, in this allegory. Raven Richardson writes, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy first learn of Aslan through Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Lucy assumes Aslan is a man. Upon discovering he's really a lion, the question is asked, then he isn't safe? Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This description of Aslan as a lion that is unsafe and good at the same time provides a simple yet amazingly complex picture of the nature of Aslan. This somewhat paradoxical statement, Richardson says, prepares the reader for the presentation of Aslan as a lion that is not tame, yet still full of goodness. Jesus is not a safe lion. As Simeon told Jesus' mother Mary, He is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. As I've already alluded to, Peter, the Apostle, writes, It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Listen, Jesus will be the occasion of the fall and the ruin of everyone who disbelieves and opposes Him. And this is good. Let me say that again because the implications are so important. Jesus will be the occasion of the fall and ruin of everyone who opposes Him. And this is good. For sin is the great problem. And Jesus is the great remedy. Do you want things to go on forever unfixed? 
Look, battle lines are being drawn. And there is a Savior. There is a remedy coming to eradicate the problem. And if you line up stubbornly and unswervingly on the side of the problem, clinging to it, like one might stay on the deck of a boat that is going down, I will not be moved. I will not get in the lifeboat. Then guess what? You will drown. No, Jesus is not safe. A good God must send people to hell who oppose and resist goodness. Preferring darkness to light. No, Jesus is not safe, but He is good. My dog, Sheriff, is our security dog, and he's a real good companion to our kids, to my wife and I. I leave on an, on an evening to go meet with someone, and I feel very comfortable if Mel's at home with the doors locked and Sheriff inside. Because he's got teeth, and he wouldn't hesitate to use them. If someone came into our house uninvited, my dog Sheriff is not safe, but he's good. A guy I watch from time to time on YouTube said that to be a proper man, you have to be a dangerous man. And I was listening to this with my boys, and they just about, their jaws just about hit the floor when they heard him say that. He elaborates, you can't be a fully good man if you're not a dangerous man. To be good is to do good to people. And sometimes doing good to people is protecting those people. I know it well. I agree with it. I teach it. And this applies not only to defending your home and your family and your brothers and sisters and people you love physically, but it applies to defending them spiritually. You've got to be prepared to use your teeth, like Sheriff. You've got to be prepared to be a dangerous man when you need to be. And yet, you've got to be gentle. It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? A student once asked the wise theologian, Bruce Lee, you teach me fighting, but you talk about peace. How do you reconcile the two? And Bruce Lee answered, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Just because you have teeth, just because you have teeth, and sometimes need to use them, it doesn't mean that you always have to. Just because you can be a dangerous man when the situation calls for it, it doesn't mean that you ought to endanger everyone around you all the time. In fact, if you did, if my dog Sheriff bit indiscriminately, Strangers uninvited into the home. My kids. If, if someone was a dangerous man towards anyone and everyone indiscriminately, he would be neither safe nor good. 
nor loving, nor kind. We must learn to be warriors. Yes, I know. I know it. I agree with it. But can you be, have you learned to be a warrior in a garden? Something like this is gentleness. Not weakness. Not softness. But knowing that not every situation calls for a stern and a severe response. It's okay to sheath your sword and tend to the plants. It is okay to water plants. It's okay to nurture. It's okay to encourage. It's okay to build up. John Calvin said, the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Certainly this point about two voices is true, but I take it a step further. The two voices are not just one voice used with the sheep and one voice used with the wolves. I think the two voices may be used at different times even with the same person. Sometimes I need a stern talking to. Sometimes I need someone to be severe with me and be like, John, give your head a shake, man. Do you hear what you're saying? That's ludicrous. Right? Or come on, man. That's, that, that's really ungodly. You've got to repent. This is evil. You're wrong. Sometimes I need someone to come aside, take me, take me aside and talk sternly to me. Other times I need encouragement. Other times I need someone to pull out the watering can and water me, so to speak. Encourage me, build me up, nurture me. You need those two voices too. You all do. We all do. Not only a pastor must have two voices, but all of us must have two voices. And we need to learn what voice to use when. A carpenter must know which tool to use. And in a like manner, <clears throat> as with a carpenter, there are principles which may guide us with respect to knowing which voice to use. If you, if you give a small baby, like maybe three months old, all the materials necessary to build a chair, and everything's there, they will not build a chair because they haven't learned the fundamental basic principles of driving nails with a hammer, cutting wood with a saw, and so forth. You learn the basic rules and the basic principles which guide you of which tool to use when. There are such principles in the Word of God governing us with respect to being knowing when to be stern and severe and when to be tender and nurturing. But as it is with, with carpentry, there is a science to it in the sense that it's not just neither here nor there whether you, whether you bang a nail in with a hammer or a saw. Right? Like if you, if you showed up on the job site and like man's got the saw just whacking and the, the saw blade is right? This doesn't seem to be working too good, right? It's there is some objectivity, and in that sense, it's, there is some science to it in terms of 
there are right ways, wrong ways, there's formulas, there's, there's objective principles guiding carpentry. But at the same time, two men can build a chair with the same materials to differing levels of excellence and to differing levels of beauty. And particularly when we come to the, the different levels of beauty, we also have to recognize that in carpentry there's not just a science, but there's an art. And so there is a science to doing carpentry, but there's also an art to doing carpentry. And I think it is likewise which, with figuring out what voice to use. Where does the sternness and the severity need to come in? Where does the, the encouragement and the building up and the nurturing need to come in? What, what mix of both? What measure of both? Because it's also not just, I mean, Calvin put it simply in terms of two voices. But we might say it's more like a spectrum along which we could choose from a hundred voices. You know, do we, are we at level three out of a hundred here? Are we at level a hundred out of a hundred here? Are we at level 15 out of 100 here? Like there's a, there's, a, there's a science to it in a sense, in, to some extent, but there's also an art to it, to some extent. As those who know even our own hearts imperfectly, we should recognize with humility that we don't know other people's hearts perfectly. And though there are some things we can know, you know, for example, out of the heart the mouth speaks, so it doesn't therefore follow that you can't know anything about someone else's heart based on the things that they say. You may know something. And yet, do you even know your own heart perfectly? So does it stand to reason that you're going to know their hearts perfectly? It can be hard at times to know how stern and severe to be or how tender and encouraging. But this is the paradigm. <laughs> Learn to be a warrior, yes. Sometimes love, kindness, and goodness demand it. But then, as Bruce Lee said, learn to be a warrior in the garden. Not hacking up the plants, but with your, with your sword sheathed, tending and nurturing. Gentleness demands it. There's a scene in Braveheart where William Wallace sabotages negotiations with the English delegation in order to instigate war. In the context, it's, it's noble and good, and I actually watched it this week and got me pretty fired up. To... <laughs> but, but some men and women seem to know only how to meet an enemy with inflammatory rhetoric and a proverbial or literal slap in the face in order to instigate war. So, sure, as someone on Facebook drew my attention to this week, learn as the prophet Amos did in chapter 4 and verse 1 to start a sermon with words like this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. <laughs> sure. Learn how, to, learn how to flip over tables, as Jesus did. Sure. Learn how to anathematize the enemies of the gospel, as Paul did. And then learn, and then learn, and then learn 
that you don't always have to do that. And sometimes you ought to sheath your sword and grab a watering can instead. In fact, in God's eyes, you should be reluctant to draw your sword. And you should be inclined to reach for a watering can whensoever possible. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, well, to other believers in Christ, to those in our denomination who are right. No, no, no. Listen. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You will not find, you will not find the mirror image of a verse like that in the Bible. The Lord's servant must be ready to fight. Stern and severe with everyone. Able to talk his opponents under the table. Flying off the handle at the first evil committed against him. Correcting his opponents harshly. There is some balance to be found on this whole discussion. But the balance is not right in the middle. The balance is more like a sword, which apparently, not that I make them, but apparently the the fulcrum point where they're weighted evenly is actually much closer to one side than to the other. And the balance on this point is not halfway between harshness and tenderness. The balance is reach for the watering can whensoever possible, but be prepared to draw your sword when you need to. That's the balance that the Bible gives us. That's what gentleness is. The Holy Spirit has no desire whatsoever to make us weak. Men, I know lots of you are scared of this. The Holy Spirit has no desire whatsoever to make you effeminate. It's okay to be a man. It's okay to be a strong man. It's okay to be a manly man. All right? You don't have to sell your swords. You don't have to sell your guns. Right? I don't have to sell my truck. All right? I like it. But the Holy Spirit does desire to make us meek, which is how the King James Version translates this word gentleness. Here comes a cliche. Meekness is not weakness. As one commentator said, it's having a sword and knowing how to use it, but leaving it in the sheath. That's what meekness is. Let me give you a real life example of this kind of meekness, which demonstrates not weakness, but strength. Many of you know of Jim Elliott and his friends who were missionaries about mid-century to the Alca natives in Ecuador. They were killed in 1956 with spears stabbed through the front of their bodies, which shows that they were not running away when they were stabbed. And here's a point that not many people know. They had guns in their holsters, which they didn't even drop. 
Now, that shows that they didn't even try to use them. If you were armed with guns and some guys came out of the forest with spears, that would not be a very even match, notwithstanding the skillfulness with which those guys no doubt wielded spears. That's not a fair fight. What that means is that they intentionally left their swords in their sheaths, so to speak, in order to do good to the people that they were dealing with. This is love. This is kindness. This is goodness. This is meekness. Constantly choosing to be less stern and less severe than you're capable of because you believe that the situation calls for it and that it would be more loving, more kind, more good for the people that you're dealing with to do so. Many of those people were subsequently converted through the ministry of the wives of these martyred men who went back to their murderers with the gospel. Is that weakness? Nah. But that's meekness. It's commendable. Let me give you another example. Jesus on the cross. People taunted him to come down if you are the Son of God. Right? Save yourself and us. But he stayed on the cross for our good. He didn't use all of the power and the sternness and the severity at his disposal to wipe those mockers off the face of the earth and vindicate himself in their eyes and show and manifest his glory so that no one would be under the false impression that he was weak. He stayed there to do good to Adam's fallen race. How much sternness and severity and power is necessary to exercise in order to do good to people? That's the question. It's not always clear. Insofar as it's a science, the Holy Spirit will bear this fruit in you as you study the Bible. And as he illuminates its meaning and brings you under conviction of sin, oh, if that's what this verse says, I can see how my conduct last week was out of step with that. As he helps us understand the principles in the word better for future situations. Insofar as it's a science, the Holy Spirit will help you that way. Insofar as it's an art, how do you get better at art? Practice. Practice, man. Practice gentleness over the years with the help of the Holy Spirit. And he will, he will convict you when you go wrong, when you make a misstep. You'll have a sweet fellowship with, with Jesus, a felt fellowship with Jesus by His Spirit when you're on track. And you'll start to recognize the difference between the Holy Spirit's prompting in a certain situation and your ego or your insecurity 
or whatever else. So you get in a you get in a tense situation, right? And and you have these competing influences. Let me let me put it this way: voices, right? Your ego doesn't doesn't speak to you in those in words, and in that sense, neither does the Holy Spirit. But you'll find these com- conflicting influences in a situation, and that part of you that's like. No, I gotta show how manly I am. You'll start to realize that is not the Holy Spirit. And you'll start to realize the part that's like, how can I help this person? How can I serve this person? How can I bring this situation to to a resolution where truth and goodness and beauty, God's glory, the flourishing of mankind is brought to pass? That's the Holy Spirit's voice. Right? You'll start, you'll learn to understand how the Holy Spirit is helping you, even in the moment, influencing you. Set your mind to, to pick up your brush, your paintbrush, so to speak, and indulge in this, this artistic endeavor, this artful enterprise. Pick up your instrument. Learn the principles of the word, which are, you know, the science of it, if I can put it that way. But learn the artfulness of it by spending time practicing it. The effect of the flesh in this battle between flesh and the spirit, which is the broader context of Galatians 5, of course. The effect of the flesh in this battle between the flesh and the spirit is that we will tend to feel justified in being too harsh with others. And we will tend to feel that others are too harsh in dealing with us. So we'll, we'll all be like, yeah, yeah, these principles are great, John. There's a balance to be found. I always walk the balance. The people that deal with me don't. This sermon is really for them. That's the effect of the flesh in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. The effect of the spirit in this battle between flesh and spirit is that we will, we will hear and heed what's being said and looking at ourselves closely, praying to God to help us in this area, looking at the the Word of God, searching the Scripture, asking the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to sanctify us in this area, we will learn to become more intentional and more skillful in being gentle. And we'll also tend actually to become more forgiving and forbearing with respect to the harshness of others towards us. The Holy Spirit is at work here in this paradigm. Helping make us not weak, but meek. Not not soft, not not effeminate, unless you're a woman, in which case effeminate is good. (laughs) But I'm talking to the man and you know that. All of the false, like, yeah, but, yeah, but, I know, not that, but the Holy Spirit is still wanting to make us gentle. The Holy Spirit is at work here. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. May the Spirit help us to grow to be ever increasingly like Jesus, who is at the same time as stern and severe as necessary, not a safe lion, 
who is good but not safe, and yet is a friend of sinners, and who has been so gentle with us.